Hello, hello, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Sorama, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. I feel a little bit... (laughs) We are truly in the depths of winter. It is not a good day for work today because it is one of those days when Thursday is a public holiday. Yeah. We're in the middle of a long weekend. And Nicholas even was smart enough to take the <laughs> Friday off. So he's he's really yes. in the middle of the long weekend. Oh, I'm yeah, in the middle I of am. like, I'm drawing towards the end of a day where one colleague was working super hard and some colleagues uh, w- were on holiday and that's okay. I mean, that's how life works, but it was definitely a bit frustrating. I felt like... <laughs> Uh, a sailor um, at sort of working a ship like it's two dudes not on a canoe right you don't have enough enough people to work the ropes yeah. no, I feel you so I, feel I, feel you. I just feel stupid I feel very very stupid and my favorite so, article headline of the day said that if you had very bad COVID you probably lost 10 points of your IQ so that makes sense my I'm <laughs> I'm literally stupid. Well, that's that's uh, that's comforting. Um, yeah. So I uh, uh, yesterday, of course, was Youth Day. Um, did you? I think you've exited your youth though, because you've been having back problems, and that's generally a sign that one's youth is over. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> but apart I mean, from that, did you do anything useful? Um, I did a. I, I did a, a, a thing on SABC Channel Africa, an hour-long mm. panel, which is maybe worth um, just uh, briefly... Re- 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 uh, I haven't told you about this, Nick, so let me tell you. Okay. So uh, it's me and the host who's like positions himself as not conservative and not down with anything like that. And the other guest who is the social justice project captain from Oxfam. And Oh, no. The, uh, or as <laughs> I like to call it, the source of all, e- all evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so Oxfam, I tried – Oxfam, before the Institute, Oxfam was actually, in a way, you could say the first civil society organization where I try to work, um, in the sense that I sent them a series of very desperate emails long ago 2014 2015 um when i realized that thomas piketty was uh making some bad mistakes so i really liked his idea and i continue to like his idea that if you if the world doesn't uh clamp down on illicit financial flows on very rich people hiding their money from the taxpayer overseas then uh, democracy is always going to be under threat from a certain perspective. Um, so you you want to, you know, as a general principle for democracy to work, people mostly need to obey the law. And when they don't obey the law, th- there needs to be a very good chance that they'll be caught. Uh, and so if lots and lots of rich people can just hide their money illegally without consequences, that's obviously a bad thing. Anyway, so Oxfam, that's like their big issue in a way. 
and and they loved Piketty because he was making waves around the world on that issue. And I was like, guys, I love Piketty too. And then I read his book and then I started reading some of his papers and then I listened to his speeches and it's terrible. He's, he's going to humiliate you. He's going to devastate you because he's ignoring his own most important results uh, that sometimes capitalism is actually, he more than anyone has proved that like free markets are sometimes really, really good, especially for poor countries that have low capital to income ratios. Oh, you, you sweet, innocent child, you. <laughs> and I was like, guys, so, like we need to start saying this now. Otherwise, someone else is going to figure it out. And then they're going to say, uh, you know, completely discredit him and use it as an excuse to to puncture the movement to try and get people to pay their fair share of taxes in the sense of just obeying the law. Um, they didn't respond at all. Uh, and then I phoned them. As the kids say, they left you on red. Did they? Yes, as they blue ticked me, they left me on red. I, I, I got, I literally, I was so poor. I got Elena, I got my um, girlfriend at the time to transfer me Skype credits so that I could phone them in their like London office through Skype. And then I eventually got through to someone. <laughs> and after 10 minutes of the conversation, I, I sort of buried my head in my hands and I was very sad. And then I smoked a joint and realized that, you know, to try and make myself feel better about the fact that once again, a hero had fallen in my eyes. Um, but I really, it just seemed so obvious that anyway, the point is that uh, there wasn't in the whole hour long, a thing that project man manager, Vuyo Kanyo, I can't remember her surname. Anyway, that my debating uh, partner, it was just more government to solve every problem, uh, more redistributive money, no worries about running out of other people's money. She was great. Uh, she couldn't have been more <laughs> perfect in her way. More representative of the genre. <laughs> Dude, but can I tell you the really great thing? Made mm -hmm. me feel so young. The host agreed with me four times out of five. <laughs> very good, very good. Dude, and for the first time in my life, someone agreed with me about the national minimum wage on air. I like did my no, whole spiel it, about how the minimum wage is too high in South Africa. And he was like, oh, you're so right. When I was a journalist, I also had to work for no money or little money community radio stations for a long time. If I wasn't, if I couldn't do that, I never would have gotten a job. I had to build my name first. And then she said, no, man, this is uh, uh, this thing of allowing people to just young people to come in and work for, for little money. It's, it's, breeding a culture of, it's breeding a culture of exploitation. And he like grunted. It's like breeding a culture of work. <laughs> <laughs> I was so thrilled, dude. I was so thrilled. It's so nice to... It's like a build-off of last week on SABC One where the guy said, I'm so sad to disagree with you. Yes. No, this is very good. This is very good. This is very good. That sometimes, was my most useful thing. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes people can't help but agree with reality. Um, <laughs> it's just always how, nice. did you, how did you youth... I, I used by watching a animated children's film at ten o'clock at night at Monte Cassino. Okay. Well, uh, I watched Lightyear, which is the latest Pixar film. Eh, it's all right. It's all right. It's have you seen Top Gun? I have not yet. I would have watched okay. that, but it was too early because it was at nine fifteen, which is far too early for me. Nine fifteen no. at night. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't like God. to watch movies with other people. <laughs> Except for my place. Oh, I see. So. You like to go after the place. <laughs> One of the greatest movies I've ever watched in my life was, I think it's called Brad's Story or something like that. Anyway, 
The reason it was so great was because I was literally the only person in the theater. It was like half past 10 at night in Santon. And if I may go on a tangent, <laughs> the pandemic has killed so much of activity at night. I don't know if you've noticed this. Yeah. There used to be <clears throat> lots of things, particularly fast food restaurants, movie theaters, all sorts of things were open at 11 o'clock, at 12 o'clock. Uh, even on weekdays, you could go and see a movie at Santon City on like a Monday, uh, a Monday morning, uh, sorry, Monday evening at like 11 o'clock at night. And you would leave the theater at sort of like half past one and it would be, it would be fine. You could then go to McDonald's at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. All of that is gone. 24 yeah. hours don't exist anymore. It's all closed down. And I think that for me is a really interesting but weird way that the pandemic has messed around with the economies in this country so i i think there's a there's an interesting expression of that in the the robbery of maize chemists which was yes, yes, yes it's in Marvel in johannesburg it's the pharmacy i relied on it's it's That's it's the, the one i use too and part of its appeal is that it's basically a 24 7 pharmacy and I think that I, my theory is not super well backed up by data, but my theory goes a little bit like this. Um, in in dodgy places, so there's like fairly nice places like Santon, and then there's also dodgy places, night night vibes that I have moved through in my time, Yeovil, Hillbrow, Town, et cetera. You get a – you the, the ecosystem definitely includes sharks, but somehow there's like a coral reef that grows in a kind of way that if you know what you're doing, you can kind of slip between the corals and under the sea anemone and you'll make it to where you want to go because there are sort of stable units, including just the guys like the equivalent of the 24-7 McDonald's in Yeovil in uh, Rocky Street is like guys who cook chicken wheat, you know, they have those little metal drums and they, yes. and they put a fire in there and then they grill chicken feet on top of that. Those guys grilling chicken feet somehow or another have have like once you've owned your turf for long enough and not gotten hit then it's like no one's going to hit you yeah so then you have these little safe pockets uh that are I, I guess they're there just by you know they're safe in the same way that the furniture is safe it's just it sort of get overlooked or something and and then you have these little islands that you can hop from and those all go away they all get taken away so that the street is truly bare and I remember seeing mm. this in the CBD in the late 90s. Yo, it came, dude, there came a point when my mom and I would go back from the market theater. And it was before the Nelson Mandela Drip Bridge. So you'd have to drive back through Hillbrow, through town, through like, you know, the business side of town and then the res yeah. residential side of town. And you would see literally no one on the streets, even at 10 o'clock at night. And then if you ask anyone who lives in that area or you do see anyone, you'll see three men huddled in the shade of a broken street, of a broken street light or like under. <laughs> no, yeah, nothing that and, and people tell you like those guys, if anyone comes out and is vulnerable to a hit, those guys will take you out. Yes. So you've got to you you've got to drive like a demon and no and there is just no one on the roads. It's like a completely, completely barren empty thing. So I guess I'm saying this the long way because I hate the phrase there's safety in numbers because I I've been mugged. I know lots, you know, everyone who's ever been mugged or hijacked 
know that's such bs <laughs> yes <laughs> guns have a have an incredible ability to reduce the effect of numbers <laughs> but um, at the same time there is a kind of there's a kind of habitual the, thing and the flip side of that is just the the fact that what we can see in the data both from our surveys and from police data is that during the plague a lot of drunk you know there was a lot of domestic violence huge huge yes. huge domestic violence and as things open up i think we live in this strange yeah i do think we live in this strange in between world where the where the, the little coral reefs that kept the night going are so apparently this has also happened in new york city where even still because a lot of people have moved to working from home because people have moved out of new york as well, which has been another thing that's going on, partly due to crime, partly due to remote working, partly due to bad school systems, all these other things, uh, means that the streets of New York are much emptier than they normally are. And as a result, or connected to, I'm not sure entirely which way the correlation goes, um, there has been a big increase in the kind of random chaotic street crime that mm. goes on. Uh, well, so this New York is subways thing. have also become very dangerous. Mm. It's such which, a feedback loop. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, which which is something that hasn't happened for a while. Uh, but if you, I don't know. Just one last thing on the maze chemist um, robbery. Or the the video that was attached that was put in the media it's from the security cameras inside the maze. And I don't know who that woman was, but there was a woman who used either some kind of hairspray or a pepper spray on the robbers at point blank range when they had a gun. Good lord, <laughs> that is a kind of bravery. <laughs> I cannot imagine. <laughs> and they shot at her too. And she didn't seem too fussed. Luckily, they missed despite being at point blank range, probably because she had pepper sprayed them first. <laughs> Jeez, like. Jeez, it's like. incredible. It's on camera. You can watch it. It's, it's, I, I, haven't I, seen I couldn't that. believe it. No, you, you have should, to send I'll, it to I'll me. show it to you. I'll, maybe I'll put it even <laughs> in the recommendations. It is incredible. Anyway, I know we have a listener at Maze Camp, so I hope you're all right. In that. Yeah. Nothing too terrible and, happened. And um, I know that someone got, uh, apparently someone in a car outside actually got caught by a stray bus. I think that was the only injury. I think. Yeah. Um, I know there was a there was some light assault. Oh, well, I don't, you know, light in the relative term. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, I think that was the worst injury was someone being shot outside. The guys, for what it's worth, in the security footage, looked like they didn't have super new guns either. One of them had like an old revolver and the other one had like a little cheap Glock thing. Which is kind of interesting to me as well. Um, but, all right, digression aside, what were our other topics for today? We had one. I don't know. Can't, wait, can, let me just say, though, I do yeah. like props to the new Johannesburg City Administration for at least talking about turning Joburg into a 24-hour city. Um, yeah. Because I think that that, is, that, really is the, that really is the goal. If you want to ask what... If I had a magic wish for Joburg... It would be that especially the CBD would be the kind of place that you and I in the last couple of months would have walked around the street at two o'clock in the morning getting like street food after bar hopping. And yeah. that that if that was the case, it would be a symptom of, but also connected through this loop, connected to yes. a to, huge way that be... there's more jobs. If you if you've got a shop that's open for twenty four hours, you need double shifts. You need triple shifts. You need more people working. Right, everything's better. Right, right. No, one hundred percent. I just do want to say though, the ANC did technically talk about. It. They don't mention it in the speeches or anything, but it was in their local government manifesto to I establish. Remember. 
nightlife across the country in the country's big cities and the metros. And I thought, I like the idea, guys, but you clearly aren't able to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, so the, so the reason I know is because the, the because I've been going to the market theater in Johannesburg CBD and to the National Theater in, in Pretoria CBD uh, and to various art galleries in, in those kinds of places for my whole life, excepting for when I lived in the States. And whenever there was a government-sponsored thing, there was always a spiel about, not always, but more often than not, if there was a nighttime exhibition or, or, or play, and the plays are almost always at night, there'd be some spiel about how important it is to get people into this part of the world and out in public at night in like a healthy way. Um, and it's it, and it's just such a good idea. Unfortunately, it is uh, like many wars. It's a it's a relentless battle. Like you, it's the kind of thing that you have to keep winning, uh, which I suppose is this is is what I'm hearing from you about New York because New York City was a bit of a nightmare at night, um, for like fifty years ago. For very and yeah. then it got yeah then it got cleaned up and now it seems to be regressing again. Yeah, if you don't keep at it, then whatever the few businesses or the few stragglers or the like nurses coming back from their shifts and whatever, you know, there's like always uh, some people are going to be able to adapt away as soon as there's some reason to, to no longer go out at night in that part of the world, but others are going to keep doing it and they become easier and easier prey as the balance of forces tilts in favor of criminality and against uh, politeness. And, 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 and likewise with buildings, one of the things about those big cities is that, it is very communally based. Uh, you share a building. If if you're in a if you're in a fifty story building, and one floor goes to the dogs, becomes a place where no one's paying rent, and like some squatters have moved in, and they're doing drugs, right. and they're a bit desperate, and so they nick someone's handbag in the elevator. Then twenty percent of that building is going to move out immediately, and they'll lose a bit of money, but they can handle it. But the other eighty percent is like now sitting in a position where they can't afford to move out because they can't get different jobs and how they're going to do it. And they then getting poorer. And then some of them are going to turn to like getting a secret tenant or this or that, you know, it's like you get these terrible, yeah. terrible feedback loops. No, it's a, it's a <clears throat> cities, cities are very sort of interconnected organisms. And uh, it's an eco, eco, ecosystem where if anything goes wrong, there's very little, it, it, it can spread like a virus through the whole system if it's not stopped immediately. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we originally today, before this digression about urban decay, <laughs> planned to talk about uh, we sense a disturbance in the force. Yes. Across the whole nation. And I so, I think this is a very good thing. It's also, I think, probably an opportunity for at least a little bit of smugness because it feels once again like we may have been ahead of the curve. But it looks like two things smugness. are happening at the same time. Yes. One, uh, the sort of Cyril Ramaphoria boosters in the media have all decided that that shtick is getting old and they need to come up with a new one. So they've dropped Cyril, at least sort of. And two, um, people are beginning to realize that the ANC is probably not going to be long for this world, at least in the, in the state it's currently in. Meaning specifically majority party uh that's in power so it could lose it's likely to lose its majority there's at least a very good chance it'll lose its majority and then some chance that uh that'll also mean it loses its position of 
executive authority and its ability to command the legislature. So I think that it's it's worth going through but some of the examples. Yeah. Just can I can I say a little bit more on that? It's not just that the ANC will lose its sort of legislative majority. You know, the, the Conservative Party in Britain has a legislative majority. It's that it will lose its sort of hegemonic grip on the politics of the country, on the way that people in South Africa conceptualize politics, and the way that so many South Africans think of. If you go into a lot of uh, South Africa's rural areas or townships, you ask people, you know, what is politics? They talk about it as though the ANC, or at least they have for a long time, as though the ANC is really kind of the center of it. The local politician is an ANC politician. Everyone votes ANC, or they don't vote, except that one uncle who was in the PAC who still votes for the PAC, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that, that age will be over. Even if the ANC yeah. manages to squeak out its legislative majority, which is, I think, increasingly unlikely by sort of like, you know, one seat, I think that the time of it as this kind of hegemonic sort of psychological block is over. So, and and can I tell you my theory of when that, the watershed moment, what's the watershed moment? I think that, um, was it Rian? Let's say Rian, who's been on the podcast, uh, identified the state capture watershed moment really as being that Gupta wedding. And, I, and, and, and that was years ago when he made that. The, what I'm trying to suggest is that as you go through history, uh, one, there's usually like a lot of things changing together and it's never really true to say that there's one watershed moment. On the other hand, there really are moments where the balance of forces seem to tilt from one side to the other side. The, the one that certainly Rian identified was Boy Patong in the in right it's like a, it's like a scale and there's there's weights building up on one side for a long time and then yeah. finally one last weight drops on the scale and then it flips yeah yeah so i think that the watershed in in this case is the flagpole one of one of the things that anyone who's listened to this oh, podcast such a before, good, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, is that we we talk a lot about the esteem market, and one of the things that I've that, that I think one can't really credit the ANC enough with is their amazing ability to read the esteem market and move the esteem market. Um, and Soror Ramaphosa, I think, even more explicitly and deliberately he conceives of himself in a very virtuous way as being as being just that as being a symbolic president as being the kind of person whose job it is to hand out he resurrected the order of the baobab awards jacob zuma really stopped doing the south african equivalent of the knighthoods cyril brought those back what's the idea the idea of the esteem market one of them is if you give gold stars to the top kids in the class you increase inequality by the way, by granting government esteem. Every time the government esteems someone with a order of the Baobab, they've got a silver, a bronze, you know, they've got these strict rankings. There's inequality. And they're saying, everyone else, huh, you're not as good as you thought you were. But actually, it's a beautiful thing because you're inspiring people. He uh, he used Tumamina, this beautiful song, Send Me. Uh, he was the first ANC president, really, since the transition to try and attach his era with a song which is such a smart esteem market move you know you want to know who's good at the esteem market all of the americans um he uh who did he who did he say was saying to mamina nelson mandela 
he was the first guy to say Nelson Mandela is talk is telling me what to do. His ghost is is my I, I'm his avatar in a sense, uh, which is very smart. Classic esteem point is that you know the most cool person, the most esteemed person, is the person you want to identify yourself because uh, so much of esteem supply services are just the halo effect is being associated you, you get liked by associating yourself with he who's already liked or she who's already liked in in these ways and more ramaphoria um by the way his economic policy right from the beginning was very much that investment drive we're going to get like 200 billion dollars or rands or whatever it was you know the the idea is there's not enough people talking up south africa he suddenly he gets the beautiful right, branders gonna... to make a little South African <clears throat> staff to wrap around his ministers to send them to Davos to tell the people, the richest people in the world, that we're ready for business. And the and the and the confidence, the 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 esteem where it turns into money idea is that well, some people invest and then that improves growth, which gets other people to invest, which improves growth more, and you get a virtuous circle out of it. So these are just some of the examples of 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 Ramaphosa's esteem movements. And and in a way, I think he just got too clever for himself because the ANC's secret source has always been very simple. You know, 2014, he was caught on a hot mic telling some old gogo in Limpopo or Mpumalanga that don't vote for us. The the Boers are going to come back and take your farm or your house. Yeah, they're going to bring apartheid back in some sense or another. You know, it's like hey, <laughs> they okay. That's part of that is part of the secret source is saying that the opposition uh is really the alternative to us is what came before um but part of the secret source is to, the flip side of that the same coin is to say voting for us is the same as voting for south africa we are the the ANC, the flag of south africa is an anc symbol how can you tell well the first thing in our 1996 constitution, that the time the president is mentioned, it says the president shall choose the flag of the country. And the first president was Nelson Mandela, and he chose the flag of the country. And what a wonderful flag it is. And green. We're a green arrow going forward. <laughs> you know, it's like it really is without, if you didn't think that the ANC was South Africa, how could anyone get away with the following argument? The ANC is doing so badly. You need to vote for them so that they do better. Because if they win with 55%, it's not going to be great. If they win with 65%, then they'll feel more confident. Then it'll be much better. <laughs> that was not just Peter Bruce. We keep saying Peter Bruce's name. But if you go back and look in 2019, the yeah, give them a, the big mandate was argument was enormous. Right. He was, yeah, he was just the most foremost defender, but it was a common, common sentiment. Uh, and it was the sort of thing that you heard amongst the, the kind of elite business party, the sort of you know the kind of the Westcliff, the Santon crowd who, who are often trying is. to, yeah, who are, who are trying to be kind of uh, you know always play some sort of four D chess with their political reasoning, you know, the, being um, you know have the clever, sophisticated answer, and which yet is never the obvious one. But but if you were to say that about your country. If someone said, like, about Portugal or Spain after they lost their royalty and they were going through a wobble, you know, I think it often does feel, people do often say about their countries, if only the smart young kids stopped emigrating and showed more confidence in the country, if only more people showed up to the rugby game and soccer game, if only there was a bit more chias, 
more energy devoted to the country, but more national pride, um, that would create a positive feedback loop. Because if there was some pride, that would attract um, positive outside attention and it would direct energy internally in a positive and, pro and pro uh, productive way rather than in this sort of either malaise or, or self-destructive kind of way. Um, and, and that would get us going forward. It's certainly an argument that I make, for example, with regards to race relations. I think that if you have a, a multi-ethnic or multi-racial society, I can't tell the difference between those words. So let's just say a society where people have different stories about bloodlines that deserve uh, mass loyalty, then I think a bit of pride in your country uh, can be a good place to displace that energy. And displacing that energy, even if it's just symbolic, really can have positive knock-on effects. You can have reduced uh, stupid mock anti competitive forces you can have reduced prejudice and fights and increased uh creative connections and friendships and and really actual more bricks getting put on top of each other and and there's crime and all kinds of good things like that so i think that the argument when an old man says you know back in my day we used to be proud of the country and it was better uh that feels kind of like it's often not true it's often nostalgic nonsense but but there is a logic to it and sometimes it could be true and and there's no ways that anyone in their right mind would you know you you need your ch your child is is underloved looking for attention that's why they're acting out give them more positive feedback and they'll and they'll do better your country needs a bit more positive feedback they'll do better the party the political party is not doing well so you need <laughs> It's just absurd, but it worked no, it because they were wrapped. In, they were wrapped in the flag, and Sora Ramaphosa. I think, I dude, I'll bet you anything, that guy said it out loud. He knew so the ANC's greatest strength is that we are the country, and the country are us. In the eyes, not just of most peasants, not that we have peasants in this country, you know, whatever, most poor unemployed people, but, but also in the, in the halls of power and the halls of wealth. Yes. Had, and especially the chief editor of The Economist who endorsed Ramaphosa, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they, they didn't want to vote. If they had not endorsed Ramaphosa, they'd be somehow going against South Africanness. They'd be secessionists, um, <laughs> which are, by the way, an increasingly real community. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the ANC has also kind of more crudely made this argument in public as well. They, every now and again, they've accused the opposition of being unpatriotic. They say that if we talk about South Africa's problems that uh, and uh, difficulties about attracting investment, what you're really doing is talking down the country and chasing investors away and somehow betraying it. You guys are saying expropriation without compensation is going to make us like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. Do you know why we're poor? It's because people like you are telling lies to put down South Africa, to maintain your privilege. And or, it's very or, as, or as Mbeki phrased it, Afro-pessimism. Yes, 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 indeed. It's, it's quite a, that's such, that is a delicious Mbekiite phrase, hey? Tabo Mbekiite phrase. afro puff on your pipe and say Afro-pessimism. Okay, so... So Ramaphosa sees all of this 
and thinks, Oaks, we need to start a new movement. We're finally getting out of the pandemic. I think the internal memo is like, we, we can't stop the Meshuganas from continuing to bugger up the economy with endless lockdowns um, because they need a hope that we have a very nice winter with very low COVID deaths. And then they can say this is all because we for, kept forcing people to wear masks uh, between as they cross the threshold to the restaurant and uh, uh, and didn't allow half the stadium to get filled up when we got it's a small all, South or, or in the movie theater, which still has lots of seats, you know, taped off so that you can't sit there. Uh, and you wear a mask all the way until you sit down in the theater when you're in a sort of filtered room with lots of other people, and then you can take it off. Did my best was, I know I already said this, but at the Johannesburg Philharmonic Orchestra at the Linda Auditorium, where the average age is somewhere between, is definitely retirement age, and no one was wearing a mask because they were just like, guys, it's done. Anyway, but we have to keep the rules so that um, people will be impressed when when the when the sixth wave or whatever we're on turns out to be not so bad and we can say it was our, our victory. So the economy is not going to be growing as fast as it possibly could, but we're going to do a lot of things to try and make the economy grow. We're going to back pay the social grants payments. We're going to uh, allocate more resources to hiring young people to do jobs. We're going to uh, open bandwidth for this and that. We're going to try and do whatever we can. We need to build momentum to 2024 now in order to win that election. And the start of it all is going to be we're going to put up, we're going to do a nice government works project because this is going to be the way that we help the economy. And the first government's works project is going to be a flagpole, 100 meters high, an erection for the AMC. Yeah, a real freaking big flagpole. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I saw this. They did it in Uzbekistan. It worked. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you're Just, if you're ever copying copying the central asian countries on anything you should probably think twice <laughs> but dude i guarantee you if he had made that i if he had put if if that flagpole had been pitched in 2018 or 2019 in, in 2018 or the first half of 2019 it would have it would have there would have been a lot of pushback and there would have been a lot of push forward and there would have been a literally a rally around the flag effect. Come on, guys. We know times are tough, but we need to build a rainbow nation and we need to. Uh, yeah, it's a symbol of, of the ANC's renewed commitment to the country. And it's all this is this is a symbol of our national rebirth from the darkness of the Jacob Zuma years. Our African renaissance. <sighs> We're full of Tom and Becky today. Dude, it would have worked. And it didn't work because he didn't read the room. The room had already... The The point is, that was the moment when he realized that, in a sense, people had already turned against the ANC, the idea that the ANC is the same as the country. Because, I mean, there were a couple of libertarians who were like, oh, dude, who cares about flags and national symbols and we should all be one country. But, like... uh most people's response, the mainstream response was like, guys, we love our country. We're doing very poorly and we, we can't afford this right now. And there was no, and that, and that's implicit in that is I think the separation of party and state 
expressed in a very very real way and that is and that is the point and and i think the 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 writer who i'm the most surprised to see this to see saying this is adrian brisson who is the most important journalist in south africa without question he is the chief editor of the largest newspaper in the country and he has made and, every and apology as, for Cyril Ramaphosa possible. Yeah. And as News24 itself said the other day, um, their headline story was News24 once again most trusted news source in South Africa. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is something that's changing a lot of people's minds a lot of the time. And he has really soft pedaled on Ramaphosa. He's had tea with that guy so many times. You know, if if I had five minutes with Ramaphosa as a journalist, I'd like to ask him, like Terry Lakota did, the first opportunity for presidential questions that came along. You said you want to take stuff from some people to give it to our people. Who is our people? You are the president. Who is our people when you say it? I'd ask him, dude, I know some of your, you know, one of your kids. I know a bit about your family. You guys are billionaires. You've made wonderful contributions to education. You've you've sent sponsored a lot of scholarships. It's really good. Your kid, the, the one I knew, was a very disciplined, charismatic guy. Excellent. How outrageous is it for a billionaire son of a president to be qualified as previously disadvantaged? What do you think about that? I think it's demeaning to your own family. And I think that it's outrageous that the cabinet and the parliament, with lots and lots of people uh, in similar positions, are, are legislating for more aggressive race laws to advantage their own children that have had private school educations, university degrees, opportunities to travel to Europe and America and Asia to get worldly insights, who know the difference between Moïse Chardon and Verve Clicquot. Uh, you know, like, to qualify people as previously disadvantaged to have had the upbringings that, that your children have had strikes me as outrageous. What do you make out of it? Adrian Bassan is definitely not going to ask questions like that, and I get it. Neither is almost anyone else. But that guy's idea of a tough question is, you know, do you think the unemployment rate is too high? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, now well, that you yeah. ask, I'll what, tell you what was the one, I really... <laughs> what was the one that the New York Times did recently? Are your critics being too harsh? Yeah, do you think your critics are exaggerating? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, now that you mention it, I really think they're overblowing this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, there it is, you know. Uh, Adrian Besson saying, I think Silver Ramaphosa will survive, but the ANC won't uh, in 2024. He thinks on the current trend, they're looking at 40% uh, in the 2024 election. Or thereabouts, and that that means that a coalition of opposition parties can get ahead. Now, th this is yeah, we are ahead of the curve. But the fact that he, that guys like him are saying things like that, I think, is an indication of the of the double split. The one is, it used to be that the ANC and South Africa were widely publicly agreed to be the same thing, even though privately most people know that they're different. And Ramaphosa and the ANC were widely agreed publicly to be different things, even though privately we all know that the that he is the head of the party. In public, it's like, no, 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 the ANC is very bad and Ramaphosa is our savior because he's going to save us from the ANC. And now that Tony gap has been you. closed. So it's like there are these three things, Ramaphosa, the ANC, and South Africa. And the bits that are, 
the bit where there's a gap and the bit where it's stuck together has shifted. And now Ramaphosa is stuck to the ANC. And those two things are separate to the country. Their fates have been divorced. I think that is a shift in the force. That's the shift. And a welcome, healthy one too, I think. Maybe, because, yeah. I mean, I know that, you know, because I've, totally. I've obviously been in, in DA circles forever. And a lot of the kind of old stalwart DA people have always been incredibly annoyed by this idea that the ANC and and, and and South Africa were one and the same thing. Um, and, and uh, uh, you know, this has been, I think... Dude, and just imagine... I just want to just sympathize with your people. Dude, your tribe has been irritated that the ANC and the country were one thing for so long. And then the ANC came with this new trick that not only is the party and the country the same thing, but Ramaphosa is a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but dude, you know why you know why I wasn't surprised? Because I saw it happen with Jacob Zuma. It yeah. was exactly the same playbook. It didn't Ramaphosa, I think, pulled it off better. But I remember, you know, kind of around the time that Mbeki was falling, 2009 happened, the DA went up by a bit, and I, and I remember kind of thinking, oh, you see people are really starting to see through the ANC now. It's still a long way to go, but there's cracks showing. And then everyone was like, Zuma is a man of the people. Zuma is putting the ANC back in touch with the country. This is a reborn ANC that's not going to be neoliberal like the last one. And all this came out, and you could just see everyone saying, "Oh, you see, it's a different ANC. It's a new ANC. It's a regenerated ANC. We need to give right. it another chance." Right. And that worked for a bit. And then when the when that ran out, the party was like, "Oh no, we need to do something else." So they found Cyril and they plopped him in there. And then once again, the same story played out. And just you wait, there will be at least an attempt. I don't think it'll work this time. But if for some reason Ramaphosa, you know, his scandal about his money or whatever gets much worse and falls out of power. There will be an attempt to try and do the same thing again. Uh, I think it won't work, but it's it's worked at least twice so far. So I wouldn't. I don't see why they won't try it again. Yeah, I mean, on that note, if I can just read out, I can't believe I'm reading out a Facebook thing, but I I saw it just before while I was waiting for you to <coughs> hop onto the call. Um, after you'd already hopped on when you had to hop off for a technical thing, I saw um, Piaki Glamini who we've both podcasted with in the past on, on other channels, um, said today, just arrest Ramaphosa already. If he goes to prison, then the other ANC crowd should see that the criminal justice system is not factional. There's no conceivable reason under our stupid laws why anyone should have so much foreign currency and cash in their property. Arrest and then move on. We'll get David, we'll get Didi, as uh, president for a while, and hopefully the opposition can remove the ANC in 2024. And I, I, I really liked like it's so frank, such a frank expression of accelerationism, right? The the, the main I was never mind the topics. He's saying, just give us, just give us the next one now. While we're in this mood, right? So we don't have to now. go through the pantomime of. Uh, of the whole, because you do you remember the NDZ versus Cyril Cyril thing, and then how you know everyone was so excited, you were excited, uh, I was a I little was bit excited, so. but I don't think I, uh, I don't think I was as as you know into it as you had. And the mainstream press was so excited, and then when Ramaphosa won the election, I remember I think it was Ferial Hafiji tweeting out something like, "The ANC's done it again; they've saved the country from total ruin," or something like that. 
Although the amazing and, thing was, yeah. And, and, and there was all this buildup and like contestation, you know, this is the, the choice, the choices between the reformer and the evil, and you must yes. choose the reformer and, the, and, and all this drama built up. And then the, there was the triumph of the reformer and that helped to build Rumbaforia, right? It was like the high from this kind of yeah. pantomime that had played out in the public square. And this is what I really like about what Mpiaki is saying here. It's like, like, let's just skip that. Because it was Get, a waste of time. It was stupid. That was, yeah. Yes. We just erase this guy. We put the new guy in, and then we're done. Clark, it's finished. Do we it, don't have to pretend. Do it now. Please do it now <laughs> right. before anybody has to get excited about anything. I, exactly. And the, and the thing is, do you know what is so tragic? So I remember, if correct me if I'm wrong here, Nick, but by so when when Ramaphosa won at Nazrek, there really was ululation. Did I? I've got to say, I, I had a strange thing where I was house-sitting in um, Saxon World, like a 10 million rand property, like an insane property. And, uh, when there was, and, the, and the people whose house I was staying at were in some game lodge in Zambia or something. But they'd asked me to WhatsApp them the results when it came through. So I did. And they, we spoke to each other and they were like weeping and like, just pouring, just guzzling gin and tonics because they were so excited about this. Um, and and their domestic worker was uh, was with me watching it on the TV, and she was elated. And I and I called a friend of mine who was staying in like sort of towards Soweto, and he was elated, and his family was elated. It was like very broad range of people were super thrilled. Then in 2018, he gets appointed as president in February. And there's like a bit of a party, but it's like, meh, this is uh, okay. Dude, then 2019, he gets, you know, they, we have the national election and he wins and he gets sworn in as president now with a democratic, now he's finally got the mandate. And we were colleagues by then. And I, and I remember us having conversations saying, dude, have you heard of any party? Like, is anyone having a jam to celebrate this? Are you, do you know people that are like super enthusiastic about this? Like I knew people who had voted for him, but I didn't know anyone who had a, 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 a an intense emotion about it, even by then. It felt like, already by then, it felt like going through the motions. Uh, and, and yeah, so... I like the idea of of skipping the emotions and going through the motions now. I do worry about it in the sense that I think South Africa's institutions, its independent institutions, in particular the IEC, really do make me worry. I think a naked autocrat would be able to abuse the electoral process sufficiently to guarantee an ANC EFF coalition or even maybe an ANC majority. Like if you're thinking the ANC is likely to get 40%, shifting it 10% is quite a lot, but you maybe only have to shift it 7% and then you get small rats and mice parties to cobble you together to keep the 51%. Or you bring the EFF back into the fold ideologically, especially if you get a hardliner. What's the difference going to be? 
And then if you've got an EFF guy in the fold, then the ANC is still looking at holding a majority at 40%. If the EFF sits on 12%, then together they got 52. Uh, and then you hardly have to do any election stealing. You know, Then you might even lose some points on the back of, you know, you get a new autocrat, Ramaposa's, you lose the Ramaposa sheen. You know, the polling had it that Ramaposa was at about 60% popularity and the anti was at about 35% popularity last time. Has, has anyone has anyone done um, polling since the scandal broke? No, I haven't not seen that any. I know. I've been looking. In fact, I know someone has done polling and I'm going to see him later. Ah, well, <laughs> I look forward to finding out about it because that's going to be quite interesting. I think South Africans are pretty slow to react to, to news. It takes a while for things to kind of filter down. But once they do... Um, I think you're probably going to see numbers at least shift a little bit for Ramaphosa in the wrong direction. And it might be enough to finally handicap his um, his great asset, which is his likability. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazingly charismatic guy. And, it, and, it's, and it's... I... I'm a huge fan of charisma. I like it on the stage. I like it in front of the camera. Um, I like it in paintings. I like it in literature. I'm really never been much of a fan of it in leadership. Um, sort of more of a, I like the rules uh, of the game as a thing to celebrate rather than the dude or the team. I'm like quite a team, sort of boring, quite a, uh, you know, boarding school type chap in that sense. Product of my upbringing in a way. But, but, but I, but I, I, and I and I and I'm saying that about myself because I think from my position it's easy to see and be very frustrated with not just in South Africa and other countries too, but here it's so obvious that in the absence of things going right and in the absence of any push really to change the rules of the game in a productive way, where does all of the energy of frustration go? It gets it can only survive in the form of hope that a particular individual, a messianic figure, is going to pull you up out of the quagmire. And that is what he's been. He's twice as popular as the ANC, and he gets knocked down. The ANC gets 35%. But I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is even if the ANC only gets 30% and the EFF gets 12%, that comes to 42 With enough electioneering, you can steal 8% and keep yourself in charge. So one of the reasons you don't want to lose Ramaphosa is if you think he's less likely to do that. Now, on the other hand, you might think if that happens, it's not going to be directed by the president. It's going to be directed by the lieutenants uh, of the party who are also worried about losing all of their power. And the, and the president's issue is, is he going to turn a blind eye or is he going to do something about it? And there, I'm not sure that Ramaphosa is any different to anyone else. I don't know about that guy uh sacrificing his chances and the anti's chances of winning in order to can you see him fight dude if he was going to do that he already would have fired Nkosazana at Leminizuma I have I have given him reason to fire Nkosazana at Leminizuma we made the arguments the constitutional court found it irrational in terms of election uh, stuff his first love is the ANC it's not not the country so I would not put it past him to uh, go along with or turn a blind eye to or not really put up too much of a fight. Yeah. And in that sense, de Klerk is a bit different here because he was sitting in the position of being able to totally turn a blind eye during the transition to 
to bad skullduggery and fernikere and stuff like that. And he, I mean, he fired people. He fired top dogs and com and and appointed. You know, you the Goldstone Commission was a pretty fearless thing. Okay, so um, in terms of two points, one in terms of judicial commissions today under Ramaphosa, and the other one in terms of a letter that we sent to him. Yes, the day before yesterday, uh, we sent Ramaphosa a love letter uh, through our attorneys. Uh, and basically what he said is, dude, if you want, if you want a savior, uh, phone Gabriel Krauser. I mean, I'd firstly nominated myself to be part of his BEE council a couple of weeks ago. But this time I was like, dude, this is the situation we're in. At least since March, you've been allowed to fight to suspend the public protector. In fact, since before March, but anyway, at least since March. But then you only suspend her the day after she initiates a new investigation into you. And then your first, like your official statement, like written by someone else, says, No, the reason that you've suspended her now is because you've got the power under the constitution to suspend her now. That's not explaining the timing. Gabriel, I don't know if it's just you, but I've lost your sound. But uh, <laughs> this is a surprise. <laughs> this is, there you are. You're back. You're back. That's my bad. So, okay, where was I? I was saying the timing is suspicious. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. So how are we like, going to help this out? You just, yeah. you just happened to fire her the day she's investigating you. What a coincidence. Dude, that is a kawinky, stinky dinky, I think is what we used to call it back when we were teenage girls at Stillian's Girls Cottage, wasn't it? <laughs> it's, it's not a good look. And he got asked about it by an SABC journalist um, at the presser. And he tried to dodge the question and she wouldn't let him dodge it. She kept coming away. She was like, this just doesn't, you know, what is it with this timing? And then he said, dude, you've got to understand I accepted that there was good prima facie reason to fire her in March. And I, and my, my lawyer sent, we sent her a letter, her team a letter, saying we're going to fire, we're going to suspend you unless you tell us why not to suspend you. And we gave her a 10-day deadline. And then she didn't quite meet that deadline, but she, she sent some things to us, and then we sent some things back to her, and then we, she sent some things back to us, and then it was back and forth. And then we set the final deadline for the last bit of uh, submissions at the 27th of May. And she made her final submissions on the 26th of May. And so now you know why we suspended her when we did. Now, I've got to admit that 26 May is not exactly when he suspended her. He suspended her like on the 10th of June. It's like more than two weeks, around two weeks afterwards. So, okay, maybe the thought is it took him two weeks to consider all those final things. But it's like, what did she submit in those final representations that she hadn't submitted earlier? Were there any timelines in the earlier submissions that, that either corroborate or, or annihilate his version? It's amazing to me that no one else is asking this because it is such a big deal. This is really, this is where I don't care about personality. I care about rules. 
Whoever is going to be the president of this country tomorrow and the next day and the next day is going to live by the precedent that we are setting today as a country together. And if right. it's the case that a public protector can open an investigation on Wednesday and on Thursday he or she gets suspended and people are like, that's fishy. And then the president says, don't worry about it. I sent her some emails. She sent me some emails. If you could read the emails, you would, you would know as I do that it's all legit. And we all just said, okay. I mean, that is not in the abstract a good flipping position to be. Yeah, it's 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 proof. It's proof that uh, I mean that Ramaphosa has been better at playing the esteem game because if 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 Jacob Zuma had done this to the Malonsela, exactly, uh, just 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 after the just as the Encanto report like investigation was announced, <laughs> the, the the media would have lost its mind, and like everyone. So so okay, it's not quite ex precisely the same thing. Because you know you could say, oh, there's more, there's more upfront evidence of very bad wrongdoing in the Ankanda matter. But here's the thing: there's still no, no, no. Least, I want to, uh, I want to push back, dude. The, the upfront wrongdoing is the same. There's the prima facie; these both look like illegal actions. What's different well, that, is that, 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 that is definitely incompetent, whereas truly Yes, yes, are, okay. No, but here's, here's, here's what I was trying to say: is that, right. is that it? There is still definitely there something there. There, there's there there in this case so you can't dismiss it it does need to have some sort of investigation and just because the person doing it is terrible well you know she's facing impeachment anyway so presumably you're going to replace her soon so don't <laughs> don't jump the gun just wait for her to get chucked out say the ANC must throw her out yeah have either tools th yeah throw her out through parliament yeah it's just it it's such a weird abrogation of process it it comes and across as guilty and defensive and so here's the thing. So what we said to him in the letter, we didn't get into how bad it looks. We just said, like, you know how bad it looks. What the president said is that there was this correspondence, that was a process, and that nothing was hidden or underhand about it. So we said, admittedly, our research team is fallible. Uh, so it might be that they just didn't find it. And in that case, could you please send a link to where this these letters have been, this correspondence has been published? And in the event that it hasn't been published, could you just share it directly so that we can help you publicize it? Because if it exonerates the president, dude, I don't care whether you like the ANC or you hate the ANC or you like Ramaphosa or you hate Ramaphosa. If, he, if it is just bad luck, if it is just bad timing, we have to put it out there. We have to protect the process. We have to not set up a precedent that next time a president gets investigated by a public protector, you can just suspend right. it. If there's, right. you know, you, you have a, because for a parliamentary committee to open an investigation is a very easy process. Uh, you don't need to pass much muster. It's so any president who wants to basically defang that chapter nine institution could either appoint a complete uh, crony, or if they see that it's a semi-independent type person, Early on in the thing, you get a committee to open up an investigation. You let that thing hang for the next five years. And the moment and then you, you fire at the moment that you need to, you need to. Right. And no it's one's like loading your gun questions. ahead of time. Right. We can't allow that to happen. We have to no, publish. We have to. And he has said that they're not hidden and that they and that there's nothing underhand. So whatever rights he may personally felt he had or what abstract there be to, to to privacy in that regard have been clearly waived. The, the the privileges of secret have clearly been waived by the president. So we really do expect, I really do expect the 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 president's lawyers to to be getting back to us uh next week uh with those and 
And, uh, you know, I've got to say, part of me hopes that they do exonerate him. Well, it would be nice if it turned out that he wasn't, like, <laughs> as bad as this makes him, as the worst version of what yeah. this looks like. Uh, because, you know, if it turns out that he's willing to, you know, just interrupt a Chapter 9 institution because it might make him look bad, that whole Ramaphosa is the stop against true authoritarianism argument becomes a lot weaker. <laughs> yeah, well, then it's like I've been thinking of him. I first thought of him as a hero. Then I thought of him as kind of spineless. And then I've got to think of him as like not just like we spineless is no good because there's no one getting in the way of the worst signs of the ANC. But the, then you've got to think he's like he's actively, actively, deliberately accelerating not just bad ideological policy, the insane minimum wage, the terrible uh, EWC thing that he pushed, the awful race laws that he right, pushed. Right, rather than but being also a fool, in his in a personal he, corrupt way. Okay. Right, he's he's malevolent. Uh, yeah. And then then the moment that Ramaphosa is proven to be malevolent, the country, the potential scenarios for the way the country goes, are a lot less happy yeah well it just all adds up to like i do think that the next two years what is it we've got some colleagues who keep counting the days i quite like that it's less than two years it's like 700 days or something. yeah a little bit less i think it's somewhere in the upper 600s i think possibly but we don't know for sure because we don't exactly know when the election is going to be so it's sort of a bit of a it's yeah a but vague it's, thing. it's in a it's in a 90 day window and it'll be towards the end of the 90 day window Come on. Right. They always they always do that. Anyway, whenever it is, it's 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 into like the next two years, there is a bit of a there is a bit of a T junction thing. Um and uh I don't know. I think it is I think it's quite exciting. It's amazing to me how how economic news and political news feel really different. Because on the political news side, it seems pretty exciting. Like this, this, this shift in the in the force, um, which, by the way, is not just about Ramaphosa and the ANC. It is also about race law. Like the only one that I can remember now is Ibrahim Harvey. Right, Ibrahim Harvey, um, uh, Zuelinzi Mavavi. I had a list of five of five people who you would not usually expect to be particularly harsh critics of BE, just coming out and smacking BE for a six. Like Ibrahim Harvey, dude, that guy is woo, uh, very, I would have thought, on board with the whole tripartite alliance for a long time. Um, but that guy came out with like this long think piece in the Times Live about black privilege, like, oh, black privilege is very terrible. Just saying everything Helen Zilla said. Uh, but he's a he's like a colored dude and he's a communist, so it's fine. But like, and he's very so smart. This, this this must drive Helen up the wall that she often says something. You know, for example, stop Zuma. And yeah, then yeah. Five years later, everyone else is like, "Yeah, this is stop obvious." Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, this guy was like saying exactly the same things. Like, you'd have only someone with black privilege could run the country so badly and still get so many apologists from the media like that is definitely anyway um uh, as george uh, w said the soft bigotry of low expectations exactly um you know people don't give that guy enough credit for his 
his his wit his his way with words <laughs> uh what what the, there was a name for them at the time george bushams yeah Isms, the bushams because he the... he had he had he had a curious way of um not quite being able to speak the english language <laughs> <laughs> yeah he would sort of he 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 definitely failed upwards with the english language <laughs> but anyway i mean the 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 the, the the shift in the force is important. It's also important to remember that it's not an overnight thing and and that there is a very good reason that for the you know a kind of basic conservatism, the kind of conservatism that's kept the ANC in charge, the, the one that just says don't change anything because change is scary. Uh, the scary thing about change is that once you open the door, uh, you can go out and go into a better place, or if you if you don't then take the next step, something right. else can come in. Uh, right. So I think the country is fully capacitated to take the next step, uh, but you know, like it's like a million decisions to do that, really. Yeah, there there, there is a very good reason to be afraid of change. Um, it may not be a good enough reason to block change, but it's worth keeping in mind that. You know, things can go in weird and unexpected directions, and they certainly will to some degree. Um, it's a little bit too early, I think, to make any kind of reasonable bets as to which way things will go. But uh, it is something to be mindful of because it helps you to avoid the dangerous paths. Yeah. Well, so I think I think change. I think supervised change probably good, like unsupervised, unscrutinized, unguarded change. That does get like. Boot, boot, boot out, and I guess this is the point I was trying to make about um, Piaki's post. Get rid of uh, uh, Ramaphosa, bring in Mabuza, just skip the pantomime this time. Let's just be like, this is what this is what the ANC is going to keep doing to you. You know, electorate, vote whichever way you're going to want to vote. And in his mind, that means uh, the ANC gets booted out. It's that last little step, which is which is sort of really depends on a million decisions and indecisions. Uh, it depends on whether people follow the ball or whether ledger domain and complicity and complacency uh, blend together to to snatch victory from the jaws, uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And, and victory really is, it's not just about the ANC. It's, it really also is about Taking that flagpole, I think the reason I the reason I really like the idea of the flagpole moment being such a watershed is not just because of the the particular local economic uh, politics in this period in time, this five years, this election cycle, but that going forward for the next century, South Africa has to be a robust democracy. We just have to, like, to the DA as well, like guaranteed if the DA runs the country for 50 years, it's going to be a nightmare. Uh, you need... Pretty yeah, stable changes Even, in power. You need a multi-party I, I, democracy. <laughs> I'm a very, I'm a very strong proponent of this idea that you need to, you need to shake the tree every now and again, and that's also why you can never because some uh, there's this there's this tendency that people in politics often have of hoping that the opposition becomes totally useless, right? If you're in, if you're a governing party, you say, yeah, uh, let's undermine the opposition, let's make them crazy, let's make them radical, let's do whatever we can to mess them all up. Because then we'll rule forever. 
But inevitably, if you rule for too long, you start to mess things up. You get corrupt, you get complacent, you get stupid, you get obsessed with ridiculous projects that no one else cares about. You send the country down dark paths. You don't have any new ideas, stuff like that, right? But if your opposition is completely, utterly insane, <laughs> then you don't get changes of government, and then you're stuck in this horrible position of, well, we don't like the government, but we have to vote for them because the alternative is so much worse. And that is not a good place to ever be in. This is exactly why, while I was initially a little bit amused by the idea of getting Jeremy Corbyn elected leader of the Labour Party, I very quickly turned against <laughs> that idea because I was like, oh my goodness, no. <laughs> now, thankfully, he got defeated. Yeah. But, and, oh Labor, boy. and Keir Starmer's way better. And it's way yeah, better. He is way better. better. Way better than, yeah. than what's it's and I guess, And I guess there's a connection back to South Africa in the sense that part of the reason I think it would be great if Ramaphosa is just super unlucky with this Pusisiwam Kobane timing thing is that it, it would – is that the alternative just makes it even harder to imagine the ANC being a useful opposition. Now, maybe the ANC needs to totally go away, but I think – it's a party that has a really long history. The last, the first 40 years of it are pretty good. Um, and there's some really brave, amazing stuff that it does during the transition. A lot of really terrible stuff, but really some amazing, brave stuff. And a great time in the 90s in a lot of ways and some excellent governance in the 2000s in a lot of ways. You know, I think no party's got a perfect track record. And uh, the anti could in, in 20 years, whatever, you know, be like a really powerful opposition party in a useful kind of way. Potentially. Uh, and that'll just be much easier if it doesn't turn out that that all of its, you know, that, for example, Ramaphosa wasn't uh, the worst version of Ramaphosa that one can imagine. But enough of local politics. Nick, I think you're giving us a nice segue in terms of the difference between wanting to fight a straw man and wanting to fight a steel man as, a, yes. as not just a, a personal, what are you looking for in conversation? What are you looking for in debate? But also, like... What is it that holds societies together uh, and what is it that breaks societies apart? You alerted me to one of the most outrageous and depressing cases of straw manning that I have ever seen. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, dude, please, please unpack that a little bit. Holy so, uh, yeah, I don't know how much I really want to spend on this because it's so profoundly depressing, but I'll give it a shot. Um, so in the US, there, as we as we know and we've talked about before, there is this line that uh, Donald Trump has been pushing that the election was stolen in 2020. It's a line that we think that there is very little evidence to support, and that furthermore, um, this lie resulted in a bunch of radicals trying to do some very terrible things on the 6th of January uh, at at the uh, on the steps of the Capitol. And unfortunately, the issue of what precisely happened on the 6th of January has become pretty big, I think, inside the Republican Party. It's become in many ways a sort of limited test about whether Trump is going to support you or not. Because if you say that January 6th was no big deal and it's actually, you know, uh, overblown scam by the Democrats, then you're the kind of guy who Trump will probably back, even if he disagrees with you on some other points. But if you say that January 6th was... Uh, a terrible day in American democracy and was really something that should be avoided again, then you're Trump's enemy and he's going to try and destroy you. Well, uh, this has come out well, a lot. Or, of or to, or to, if I can just put that in another way, 
if yeah. you think that January 6th was a failure <laughs> to keep Trump in power, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> to be bemoaned, then yes. you're winning. And yeah, if, if you think you it was think a dark that, day because if the like, Democrats thank won. Goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the attempt to hang Mike Pence failed. <laughs> oh no! Oh, what no, a terrible no. day! I'm so sad. <laughs> yeah, um, that is the test. That is the test. Yeah, right. So this is this has been playing out in a lot of Republican primaries across the country. Uh, Republican candidates have taken a number of different views on it. Quite a lot have sort of traded a kind of middle line where they said, "Oh, no, let's not." talk about january 6 you know some things happened and it's not really important and whatever but hold here's on can what i really say something yeah. yeah so i mean i think one of the one of the aspects to that is that straight out of the gate after january 6 you get this question about should donald trump be impeached and i mean we talked about it at the time and i think we both kind of disagreed with each other and with ourselves about what the right line was maybe i'm misremembering maybe it was more clear than that i do think that there um there was this difficult argument there was this difficult question about procedurally whether it's possible to go through with the full impeachment process uh while he's still president it became clear that you couldn't do that and then it became a question about do you impeach a guy even though he's no longer president um and that's I, where I, sort of i remember making the argument that you should uh yeah yeah, and I and I think I and I think I wasn't so sure. I was like, you know, if he if he was going to still be around, you should impeach him. But if he's not going to, once he's no longer president, does it still make sense to impeach him? I, uh, I think the 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 nice reason to say yes is that doing so um, provides some censure. In other words, once you've been impeached, it's no longer that you're removed from office; it's also that you can't get back in. You can hold but that of trust or privilege in the United States ever again, I think. But that can be revoked by a simple majority of the Senate. So it seemed like if in 2022 the Republican Party gets the Senate back, they could easily remove that barrier. And my concern at the time about that, and I'm not sure that the concern took me all the way to thinking he shouldn't be impeached. Uh, I'd have to check the tape, honestly, to remember my mind at the time. Uh I was definitely quite irritated. Um, but my concern was certainly that the Democrats would make arguments that would exaggerate uh, Trump's role or deliberate role in the most illegal parts of what happened, as well as exaggerate the nature of the event. In other words, we saw it immediately, like a police officer died, not of a violent attack, but it was misreported that the police officer was killed. Uh, on the flip side, someone was, one of the protesters was shot in the face. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to go back and relitigate the whole thing to 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 split hairs and say the ways in which Democrats were, were exaggerating, in my opinion, uh, because the overall impression of the day is that this was a very, very terrible day and 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 very very bad behavior on the part of those who um, were subverting the peaceful transfer of power. But my worry was and remains, and this is I think the thrust of the story uh, of today, that 
that this thing would be used to keep Trump alive, actually, to, to keep the straw man opposition, the, the most straw man version of the Republican Party in opposition, uh, partly by creating a different litmus test, not one of like, as an American or as just someone who has some interest in, in democracy and freedom, sustaining itself in the world's largest economy, uh, do you think that the the sad thing about January 6th is that the insurrection failed or the you know attempt to keep Trump in power failed or whatever you want to use? The terms are so hard to, to pick on. Or do you think the sad thing was that it, it happened at all that way? Um, instead, let's have the litmus test be, are you prepared to say that this was worse than September 11th or not? Are you prepared to say that this was worse than the Civil War or not? Are you prepared to say that this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world? Or if someone if someone goes in that direction, are you going to maybe say, no, this was bad. This really should never happen again. This is an outrageous disgrace. But also, you know, here's a factual claim that you've made and it's wrong and it's wrong in this direction and it fits into a pattern of things being wrong in a particular direction from a certain side that I think is worth cautioning against. If you take that second view, then you're no longer a patriot or no longer someone who respects the, the organs of democracy because on that test, the competition becomes between the stop the steal guys and everyone else. And on that version, the Democrats can win no matter how uh, badly they're administering government and and i and i think that i mean i think it is a pretty obvious worry and a lot of people had that worry but i think that the the worry has been given such a starling expression by by a, a range of political funding moves but particularly the one from the house majority committee super PAC. oh my word have you listened to that ad i have not Dude, you should. I, okay, I'm going to put that ad in the recommends if I can. So, it is so, of all of the ones. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just to clarify what we're talking about. Basically, Democrats have simultaneously appeared to have taken two lines. One, that January 6th and the Republican Party that supports that supports what happened on that day um, are a fundamental threat to democracy and to the American Republic, and they can never be trusted with political power ever again. And at the same time, democratic strategists and political consultants and political action committees, or PACs as they're usually called, have been trying to fund, endorse, boost, uh, wink at, and encourage organize, uh, uh, Republican candidates who believe the most extreme versions of the January 6th uh, stuff. In other words, the people that the, the people who believe that it was a failure because it didn't keep Donald Trump in power. Those are the people who are being bo boosted by Democratic operatives within the Republican Party. Well, now, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars, like paying for adverts saying, "Don't vote for this guy, vote for this guy." There's this advert that's like there's two Republicans. One is like, okay, he's right wing. If, if right-wing automatically disqualifies a person, then I guess who cares what's the difference. But he's like a center-right, moderate, reasonable dude. Then the other guy is like an idmobile who thinks that, uh, you know, everything's a lie excepting for the fact that Donald Trump is going to make America great again if you just one way or another, you know, count the ballot boxes and, 
aliens flipping got in the way of the the right person winning whatever and i'm only exaggerating a little bit with the aliens um the democrats run this advert they like, spend like a million dollars running this advert in this very tight race where the lunatic is like not getting enough adverts that's his only disadvantage saying you know this moderate guy he calls himself a republican but he voted to impeach donald trump how could a Republican ever do that? This guy's a disgrace. <laughs> you should totally be a real a crazy Republican. Guy. <laughs> now you could see the consultants, you know, sipping oh. on their doing their doing their cocaine, sipping on their margaritas, saying, "Oh, this is so genius. This means we're going to have the really crazy guy to run against the election, and it's going to mean that we don't have to fight as hard, and we're more likely to win our." Our, our race yeah. against we spend one million dollars on this and we're guaranteed to win the final whereas in the final we're gonna have to spend 20 million dollars to to beat the moderate smart serious guy so we're Except saving 19 million dollars that we can like give to the poor exactly but here's the problem <laughs> hold if you ask on. most hold americans on. if you ask most americans what they care about at the moment it's things like inflation things that the Biden administration has not exactly covered its, itself in glory in, that the Democrats have not managed to, despite having uh, at least theoretically legislative majorities in both houses, have not really had much idea of what to do anything about, even as a sort of show of force flag-waving exercise to make people feel better. And so there is every indication that there is going to be a massive Republican wave this year, despite... The, crazy things that some yeah, dude, blaming blaming putin for all the ills in america is just not working as well as yeah it was, especially as it, especially since the, it also <laughs> by the way didn't work in 2016 2017 like the democrats right. and and the inflation the inflation also precedes the war in ukraine which is another one of those amazingly sort of, it's also yes. um, the, the most delicious <laughs> thing about the inflation problem is it's not just the democrats fault but anyway. yes. no of course but, but is, they're too they're too thick to make that argument um now yes. the latest lines have been uh, what is the Biden administration trying? Uh, the oil companies are not drilling enough oil. Uh, okay. <laughs> Didn't you want to ban oil drilling? <laughs> anyway, you hate oil whatever. companies because they're too lazy. They're yeah. too green. <laughs> they, haven't been, they haven't been making enough CO2. You're not raking the earth enough. Before. Yes. And what was what is the other one? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it's because businesses have just gotten more greedy. <laughs> Yeah, no, and he also, also inflation tried, isn't that bad. Did he try it? Businesses have gone too greedy in September last year. Yes. Didn't work then. But he was like, you know, let's try that early summer. Maybe the problem was I was trying it during the fall when people's moods right. are different. Let's try it early summer. It's not, so, it's very, I think, yeah, it's not going to work. This it, is, yeah, this is all indications that the Democrats have no idea how to rescue themselves from the absolute massacre that's going to happen to them in the midterm can, elections. Dude, can I just say my favorite one? Did I show, I yeah. showed you my favorite one was Biden's new press secretary. I kid you not, she gets asked about the baby formula, which is this ridiculous fandango where, you know, they put up tariffs. And I, I don't even know if these tariffs started with Biden. They might have started before with Trump. But there's been a problem with getting baby formula into America. Uh, part, yeah. part of it, it a part of it is due to the fact that um, one of the big American manufacturing plants got shut down because apparently there was some health and safety concern. But the other problem is that regulators in America have not approved most European baby formulas. Yes, I know they've been shutting down the European ones. Okay, so, so you've got no baby formula, and it, and obviously, 
in politics, nothing is going to sell as hard as babies. Uh, and the government that's stopping the babies from getting literally the milk that they need in, in the event that they're like, for some reason, their mom can't or doesn't want to or whatever, feed them the old fashioned way. It's not a good look to not have enough baby formula. By the way, South Africa has run out of baby formula multiple times. No one cares. Yeah, because there's you know, so is, many other problems. Yeah, this is the third world. No one. <laughs> this is just expected. Okay. But like when you live in a country with the world's largest GDP, you expect to be able to have baby formula and you don't have baby formula, so they complain about it. So someone says, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday. I hope it is on South African Youth Day. Someone says to Biden's uh, new press secretary, um, yo, what about the baby formula? And then she says, oh, no one's asked me that in a while. Hold on. And then there's dead silence do, while she yeah, flicks the through sound the file. Of, yeah, you do hear the shuffling, the shuffling of paper. <laughs> hold on, hold on. It's been a while. I, I, know, I think there's something there. I think we had an update. 30 seconds later, she looks up, she says, no, there's nothing new. And I can't find the notes for the previous one, but I know we did make a statement about this before. <laughs> right. So they're toast. Um, <laughs> and, and the upshot of that is this genius 4D, oh, we're so clever. We're, we're going to manipulate the election to make sure that the crazy person is, is our opponent is at least in some cases very likely to backfire <laughs> and end up with the the crazy person being elected to the house defeating the democrat anyway because people are so hopeful of biden's administration and i would like to remind everyone that the hillary clinton yep, yep. campaign supported donald trump in the republican primary in similar ways and encouraged their friends in the media to do so as well because they thought he would be the easiest candidate to beat in 2016. <laughs> now i don't think there is any better example of the incredible incredible cynicism that has affected the american political class all right, sorry about that. We fixed our technical problem. Um, Gabriel lost sound there for a second. But anyway, we're about to wrap up. <laughs> that is the sound of the intense cynicism of the... American political class, yes. Um... <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there like... I just want to know, is there... Does it make sense? Is there something to be said for like a broader universal human idea that... Is it too much to say one should to some degree, in some ways, try to steal man life. I feel I... like there's a mentality here. There's a mentality of trying to win the easy way, which actually makes things harder and worse and uglier and and more rubbish. So I once I once heard this 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 quote from some sort of professor, which said that a lot of sociological research the last thirty years has essentially proven simply that your that at the end of the day, your grandmother was mostly right about the things she told you. And yeah. the idea that there are no shortcuts to success, happiness, and goodness is it is almost every culture in the world has some yeah. fundamental version of that story. Every Yeah, they all got grannies and they all say <laughs> that. Hey? And yet, <laughs> we keep losing the clever the clocks, the, the bloody, yeah. smart, the, the same. 
it's it, and, and, and this is the same group of people who who if they were South Africans that the people who are currently boosting the the, the sort of um, big lie people in the Republican Party, the Democrats who are doing that, are exactly the people who in South Africa would be talking about how you need to vote for the ANC to get Ramaphosa over get 50% <laughs> so that he can... It is... <laughs> it's the same kind of, I'm so clever, but I'm going to do something stupid. <laughs> anyway. My head, my head. Dude, I'm so stupid. I just want to do something simple, like... Yes, like put in the hard work, you know, of changing a government or of arguing against an opponent who's a reasonable human being rather than taking everything faith. to the gutter. Yeah, because it's really nice to, yeah. And, and of course, you know, this, this encourages each other because now the far left of the Democratic Party is going to say, you see, look at all these crazy right-wingers in government now. You need to vote for us because we're the only people who have the guts to stand up to them correctly and that justifies them. And before you know it, you've got armed camps throwing things at each other and, you know, you've got Spain. And if you know anything about Spain in the 30s, you did never want to be Spain in the 30s. <laughs> so this morning on Chai FM, I boldly... I had to do an eight-minute discussion on international relations. Uh, it's very difficult to. Um, but I did venture as far to say, I don't know, there was a little bit of like, shall we blame the UN? Dude, UN does not impress. I am always the only guy when I was a t when I was in my 20s drinking in Melbourne with other journalists. I was always the only guy who ever had a nice thing to say about the UN. And I often had many nice things to say about them. Um, it gets harder and harder every year. And not just because I'm getting older and slower. <laughs> but oh. I still have some nice things to say. Also, like mainly, I don't think they're the problem. I think the organization tends to be about as bad as the people who constitute it. And those end up being us, in a sense. Uh, but I, did, I, I, I threw a spicy line, uh, I thought, in retrospect, which is that I think in a way what's happening in Ukraine really is like what would be happening in the United States if... 30% of the country got its way. Like there's 15% on either extreme that is that is well, well on its way to doing that. And there really is this kind of institutional integrity in the middle holding it together. Uh, and it's not that the 15% on either extreme have the stomach for all-out war. It's just that the thing about war is that it's such a reminder. Once you ratchet, there is such a thing as a ratchet effect of hostility where you allow things to get a bit worse and then they get a bit worse than that. And then they get a bit worse than that. Anyway, it's a, it's another way of saying the, the old line, which I really do like that uh, the cold war ended only for the United States to internalize it. <laughs> I saw a poll yesterday, which says something like, 35, 40% of Americans, something like that. I can't remember the exact number. But it was some disturbingly high amount. I think there will be a civil war in America in its lifetime. And I kind of thought, you know, is this going to be the first country which decides to have a civil war essentially out of some kind of, yeah, yeah. essentially out of some kind of existential boredom? Yes. <laughs> yes. We didn't have anything better. There was nothing better on TV. Yeah. So we decided <laughs> to destroy our own country. Anyway, uh, the, 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 the silliness of American politics aside, uh, should we close off? Do you have any recommendations for? You go first this time, Nick. Okay. Um, yeah, so, I, so I mean, I think both of us, 
like there's space. I think I want to throw that ad and you'll throw that. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Um, So I think the thing I probably want to recommend, uh, I mean, it's fairly niche, but I guess most people listening to this podcast (laughs) kind of expect that. (laughs) You've cornered yourself already. You obviously like good corners. It's it's an article on lmonitor.com. It's called The Birthplace of of the Saudi State Becomes Tool for a New Nationalism. And it's just a short little piece talking about how Saudi Arabia is trying to transform its image to be um, kind of more secular. Uh, It's very much an attempt by the royal family to take more, and this is undoubtedly driven by Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto king of Saudi Arabia, the prince, what is he, the prince, uh, the heir apparent, the prince uh, regent. Um, you're just to, fancy titles at this stage, Nick. Uh, you, you see, if you're the, the punks with the hat, yeah, <laughs> okay, these things, man. I have no idea what really... the difference is. What is it if the prince apparent and the heir noblesse, the heir apparent? Yeah, he's the heir apparent. Uh, technically, his father is still king, but his father is senile, so that's why he's he's de facto king, okay? So he's the prince regent. Yeah. Isn't regent the... T- Sorry, you said it. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he's formally the regent because they may not officially admit that his father is, you know. Uh, Lord. Hey, it's complicated. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Absolute monarchy is a very strange thing. Anyway, so he's been attempting to move the country away from its sort of hardline Wahhabist, Salafist, Islamist character because for a long time, the Saudi, the Al Saud uh, clan, the, the ruling dynasty of Saudi Arabia has made this kind of deal with the devil where they originally were able to conquer large parts of the Arabian Peninsula with the help of the Wahhabi sect of Islam, which uh, which has had a lot of influence on groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It's not the same thing, but it's had a lot of influence on them. Um, and these guys have maintained a lot of power in Saudi Arabia for a very long time, particularly over its education system and and uh, things like that. And also, it, for a long time, Saudi Arabia had like religious police. So if you were seen, if you're a woman seen walking around in public without a male escort, the religious police would pay you a visit and either uh, beat you or fine you, depending on the crime. Anyway, so Mohammed bin Salman has been trying to roll this back. He's also been trying to centralize more power in himself because beforehand Saudi Arabia was was more country that was like a the family ruled it so there was a, there was a, a prince or a line of, of princes and kings that were more in power than the others but generally you consulted amongst the family and the kind of nobility you might call it to decide what mm. to do Mohammed bin Salman has arrested a lot of his relatives mm. and put them in hotels under house arrest specifically yeah. so he can centralize power under himself. He's also decreased the power of the religious police. I don't think they're too active anymore. And he's trying to turn Saudi Arabia into a much more kind of uh, modern, secular, not entirely secular, but more secular country than it has been up till now, and one that actually has some sort of human capital and innovation, which it has neglected for a very long time. Anyway, as part of this, this article just talks about a museum that the Saudi state is opening, which is a palace of the Al Saud family from the, the 1930s, uh, from the, sorry, from the 19th century before they conquered the Arabian Peninsula, which they did actually at the beginning of the 20th century. And it focuses, it very much diminishes the role of the Wahhabi sect in founding the country, and it boosts the Al Saud family's name. And it's just interesting to see how on the sort of esteem level, they're trying to build up this image of Saudi Arabia 
as a kind of Arab nation rather than an Islamic nation, mm. um, which is, I think, quite interesting because Saudi Arabia uh, remains a, a quite important player in the world and will be for at least some time. Big so time. A lot of oil holds a lot of America's debt. Yeah, and, and uh, also important diplomatic it, relations with Israel, kind of. Uh, yeah, and it's 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 fights it's fight against Iran. Oh, and as a yeah. side note, this isn't part of my recommendation, but something you should keep your eyes on in the news is the heating up of a of the Cold War that's been going on between Israel and and it's not so cold. It's been not very cold for a long time between Israel and Iran. Uh, yeah. The Israelis keep assassinating senior. Um, Iranian scientists involved with the nuclear program yeah. and uh, in retaliation Iran tried to carry out a terrorist attack against Israelis in Turkey the Israelis detected it beforehand and managed to get their citizens away but uh, yeah no if there's going to be another war breaking out anytime soon it's probably going to be between Israel and Iran yeah and so isn't Turkey amassing troops on the edge of Syria to go and attack the Kurds again uh, yeah, although they've been trying to do that for a while, and that's also due to the fact that probably um, Russia's, shall we say, distracted, <laughs> and so yeah. their ability to to prop up um, Bashar al-Assad and his 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 faction there in Syria is is much weakened. Yeah, so also a potential outbreak. I uh, okay, interesting, Rick. My recommendation is is going to be a bit out of left field. Uh, literally, the New York Times, um, because a friend of mine has given me a free subscription to it. I have been reading it and not just playing Wordle. And for the for I don't last six months reminds me of my youth. It does make me feel young because in my late teens and twenties, I used to read it every day. Anyway, I'm going to recommend a particular article about Chrissy Pselka or something. I don't know how to say her surname. You'll see it in the article. Um, basically, the, the thrust of this is that uh, th this New York Times uh, opinion piece says the new wave of feminism have, has arrived and is called bimboism. So in this theory, the last wave of feminism was sort of epitomized by the crowd of Hillary Clinton supporters that said, we are the pantsuit people. Um, feminism meant uh, you can do it all which was a famous name of it, a, a piece written by um, a Princeton professor come Obama administrator advisor uh, against the Princeton mom, who was a columnist who said, look, you can either be a really great mom or you can have a really great career. If you want to do both, you're going to compromise one or the other. And the pushback was, no, dude, you can be like, you can climb to the highest levels of power and academic excellence and be a super mom and do yoga at six o'clock in the morning and have a hot bod and be super healthy and have fun holidays and be cultured and also enjoy guilty pleasures. And it's all going to be great. You can have everything and you can be the pantsuit The you know, you can wear the pantsuit in the day and the evening dress at night and the yoga pants in the morning and the bikini on Saturday afternoon. And it's like, it's all going to be awesome. And, but, but very much the successful career woman, mother figure. Um, and, and so the new thing that the New York Times is sort of celebrating, uh, I mean, with some circumspection, but definitely celebrating, is bimboism, which is all about saying it's, it's, it's sex positive, sex worker positive. So uh, yay to prostitution, yay to uh, bearing cleavage and, and beautiful legs. And, and, this, and this TikTok 
personality who embodies this, who embodies hashtag bimboism, is beautiful. Beautiful blonde lady, um, symmetrical features, strong cheekbones, uh, like a face that reminds me a lot of Lady Gaga, blonde and busty, and uh, a sort of uh, like nasal and slow and, but I don't know, she speaks like a kind of bimbo. I don't know. I'm I'm going Valley Girl there. She has a she has a more East Coast way of speaking, um, but she is very pro pro BLM, very anti straight white men who exhibit small uh, penis energy. Um, she uh, she she likes girls, gays, and nays. That's her that's her crew. That's that's one of the sort of terms she's coined. Um, so theys obviously refers to like bisexual, transsexual, intersexual uh, girls and gays, girls, gays, and theys. That's her. That's her crew. That's who you should hang out with. Um, she is sort of proud of not being able to do basic arithmetic or read long sentences, and of um, being sexually very attractive and. Uh, and let me guess, she makes more money than God through her OnlyFans account. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's got four and a half million TikTok followers and like untold like sponsorship deals and she's like nailing it. And she's also like has like the, the thing about the New York Times article is that you might think this is all totally tongue. You might think it's hard to tell when you, what I find amazing about these videos is it's hard to tell if it's satire or not. Because there are actually people who say all of these things. Oh my God, I wake up in the morning and it's so late because I need my beauty sleep. And then I go to get a frappuccino with oat milk and I saw a little Trump supporter and I stomped on him. Yeah, they're gross. And then I'm going to hang out with my girls, gays and nays. And we talked about how terrible straight white men are. And then I went to lie in my bed and I thought about how bad capitalism is. But I had to spend money to get all my nice things, and I hate that. And then I went to sleep, and it was so beautiful. I dreamt beautiful things about a world with no capitalism. Like I have, I have, in sentence by sentence, not all in a row, but sentence by sentence, I have heard all of those things said earnestly. Um, anyway, dude, it's I. I think that there is something. I I I shared this with my fiance, and she said, "Dude, this is the logical conclusion." Um. Of a certain thing that's been going on. Anyway, so proud to be a bimbo. Uh, so and, and, and have earnest conversations. So just by the way, it's satire or not satire. Like the thing about the New York Times piece, you get the sense that she's engaging. She really thinks it is very important to use this TikTok platform to spread the word on, on what matters and what doesn't matter and um, and sort of being sex positive and, and proud of being a woman. And together with that, proud of being uh innumerate um it, it's, is... it, it irritated elena more than anything i've showed her <laughs> um <sighs> it's also it's also really fascinating anyway so i think you um, should read yeah, it I'm... it's my recommendation uh, uh, that gives me hmm yeah, i'm gonna have to think about that before i say anything about it but all I can really say is buy gold. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please send me the link to that New York Times article. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> and, uh, it is definitely time. funny. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it is. But let's, <laughs> let's say that maybe for next time. All right. And with that, uh, yeah, keep the flag of liberty flying, and we'll see you all soon.
Kr, 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 kr.